Well, what a conversation that was. Today I spoke with Shamil Thakra, co-founder of The Brilliant Dishoom. And I apologise in advance if you hear me talking about their chai throughout the entire podcast. I have never tasted anything like it. I was in his incredible Kensington restaurant. And what took me by surprise is how soulful this conversation became very, very quickly because I was just utterly, completely blown away by his creativity, his vision, and the beautiful way in which he approaches business. He talks about putting poetry at the heart of your brand, and I'd never heard this before. I honestly can say I haven't stopped thinking about this episode since recording it, and it's literally changed my viewpoint on brand and enhanced my understanding on why I'm building the brand I am today. I really hope it moves you as much as it did me. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. You won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Shamil. Lovely to be here. We are in your phenomenal restaurant, Dishoom, in Kensington. It's an incredible brand. I've been so looking forward to speaking to you. It's been a little diary ping pong, hasn't it? But we're here in Yes, the we're end. here now, and it's lovely to see you, Holly. Welcome to our restaurant. It's just beautiful. Now, what am I drinking here? We're both drinking chai, which is today very appreciated on a slightly miserable day, and it's... Um, a warming blend. We cook it up for about half an hour or an hour, and uh, it's a sort of warming blend of milk and spices and tea. And when you have a what is called a chai tea latte in Starbucks, it doesn't. It's not really the thing because that's made instantly. Whereas, whereas chai has to be brewed up and boiled, so that the tea really gets a chance to sort of sit. The tea leaves and the spices get a chance to sit with the milk in a sort of boiling state, and then and then you get the depth of flavour. You know, the warmth and the pepperiness, the gingerness, and all those other nice warming spices that you have. I have to say, everyone, because you can't obviously taste it through this podcast, I've not quite ever drunk anything like it. And when Shamil said, would you like a cup of chai? I said, oh, politely, yes. And now I'm sitting here thinking I'm not leaving because it feels like the most, the most warm hug that I'm getting from a glass of anything. Well, they'll, they'll top you up all day. So if you sit here with a cup of chai, they'll come and keep topping oh, it up. Oh, yeah. Right. That's, yes. that's... You'll be very high, you'll be high as a kite by the afternoon. I'm yes. happy already. Listen, I would love to know if you could tell me what the word dishoom means and why you decided that it would be the perfect name for a restaurant because when I researched you I was surprised with this because I yes I had one thought but tell me about it well it's not a good name for a restaurant really um, (laughs) at all it it makes no sense it's um it's the Hindi word uh in old Bollywood dating I think from the 60s uh probably from a film called Sholay with Amitabh Bachchan um uh, and dishoom means a punch 
or uh, the sound of a bullet flying through the air. It's you like know, a, 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 our kapow. Yeah, it's... like, you know, when a hero lands a good punch and the villain goes yeah. sprawling onto the floor. That's, that's the word. So it's a, very, it's a very Bombay word, but it's, it's, quite a, it's a very Bollywood word, obviously, and it's not a very sensible name for a restaurant at all. <laughs> but I suppose we sort of, you know, have evolved with it. And You've evolved it, yeah. with it, and I, I just, I love knowing that because that already brings a bit of your personality straight away into this brand. The first Ishun restaurant opened in Covent Garden in 2010 and immediately took London's restaurant scene by storm. And we're not short of Indian restaurants. Why did you feel that Ishun was needed? And what was that USP? What was that founder-ness that you thought that you needed to bring to the scene? I think, um, I mean, I'm not sure if it took off straight away. That might be the perception, but nothing ever does, does oh, it? Yes. No, people, people oh, is it say like the that. overnight yeah. success yeah, that took 10 that. years? It, just, <laughs> it did take some time. Because it's sort of back in 2010, you could either eat at a curry house, and curry houses yeah. are great. It's a great British institution, and we've all sort of been, you know, too, too many pints of lager and curry in a curry house yeah. late, late on a sort of Thursday night um, as students. But uh, you could either go to a curry house or you could go to Benares. And there wasn't something convincingly in between. And at the same time, I felt that India was summoned up in a series of cliches to the British mind. So whilst, you know, there's a long experience of India, long relationship, Britain and India, obviously, and that's an interesting and, you know, maybe controversial topic, but the cliches that people used to think about India in terms of maybe Bollywood, cricket, curry house, you know, days of the Raj, mm -hmm. um, that sort of thing. And there was no sort of other thing. And there's so much more to be said, both culturally and food-wise, about India. And we think of the food of India, we used to maybe, as, as curry, but, but we don't serve that much of what you would call curry. We serve different food, the sort of food you would eat on a street corner or in a cafe or perhaps also in an Indian home as well. And at the same time as well, when you go to a place like Bombay, the architecture, the culture that you see there. Um, I mean, here we're surrounded by Art Deco, and people don't know, really, that Bombay is the biggest Art Deco city after Miami. Um, wow, and it's an amazing place. The whole of South Bombay is filled with beautiful Art Deco, and it's very local because Art Deco happened a bit later. And it was all—it was also architects who were local as well. So it was a reaction against the sort of neoclassical Edwardian architecture. So people were building these Art Deco buildings as a sort of statement of almost nationalism, saying, "Look, we are—we're mm. doing this. This is new. This is this is a departure from the old sort of Indo-Saracenic Gothic and classical Edwardian." And now we're moving forward. So Art Deco was almost. Nationalists, so the people don't know that stuff, and I no. wanted to do that. So we built eventually an Art Deco restaurant, which you're in now. Yes. Oh my gosh, and it is absolutely stunning. And I think that this is the beauty of this brand, and what I'm excited to get into. But before we do, I just wanted to ask about your childhood, because you were born in Uganda to Indian parents before moving to India as a baby, and then you moved to the UK. Business basically was in your blood, um, and I, I, I can't believe this. Um, and family business as well. Your father and his brother were the founders of Tilda Two Rice. Two brothers, yes. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah. and, and, that... and my grandfather. And your grandfather yes, as well. Yes, my grandfather and his three sons. You know, my father first and then the other two sons, yeah. Really? This is just amazing. And what a story. So was this entrepreneurial influence there from day one? I've spoken to other founders where, you know, art, the business was spoken about at the breakfast table and the children didn't quite realise they were absorbing it. Or do you think it was something else? Was there a sparkle with business in your childhood? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I definitely think that's true. Um, and, you know, business was discussed all the time. And uh, we, we were sort of surrounded by the business as, as, uh, as we grew up. And on, on the other hand as well, I found that for myself, um, I had lots of odd and quirky interests. You know, I was really interested in stories and I was deeply interested in Indian history and mythology. 
and really interested in music, interested in just all these different things. And, and I didn't know it when we started the shim, but the business became my way of bringing all of that together and telling those stories. Yes. So for example, we're, we're sitting here in a restaurant, which is an art deco, you know, sort of architectural design. The, the idea here is that there's an imaginary owner called Cyrus Irani. And uh, he's, uh, he's over there behind you actually on the poster. He's a sort of cross between Carlito from Carlito's Way. Do you know that film? It's a good film. It's Brian De Palma. And, and so I, I love films, so now suddenly that's useful. And between Rick from Casablanca. Yes. And, and he's, he's a sort of, he's a bit shady, but he's a really good man. And he's got some cash, but he went to prison. And he comes out of prison in 1948, which is just after India's independence in 47. And he buys an old cinema, Liberty Cinema, which is basically what this restaurant looks like. And we spend a lot of time looking at the architecture of Liberty Cinema and recreating it here. I mean, all these sort of gorgeous panels you see are very sort of Liberty cinema and he he buys this and turns it into a cafe slash jazz club and his girlfriend Ursula is on the wall there (laughs) and we launched this restaurant not as a restaurant but actually as an immersive theatre production so you walked in and you were greeted by Cyrus we worked with some punch drunk people to bring that alive and there was a cast there were some policemen trying to get him back in prison and you were sort of cast as not guest to a dishoom for the first two weeks you were cast as the customers of the opening night of a place called the Bombay Roxy in 1948 and for every restaurant we write a story so maybe coming back all the way around to your question, yes, I mean, I think it was partly the entrepreneurial stuff, but also partly as Dishim became a thing, it was for me a way of expressing all that other stuff, um, which, which wasn't sort of in my Gujarati business blood. That was all this other stuff that I really, really cared about. This is, for everyone listening, why Shamil's story is driving me insane, because as everyone knows, the love of merging worlds, so merging business and entrepreneurism with art and um, the arts and creativity and what happens when you collide that and how many naysayers there would be to that collision and yet what some of the best brands I think are ever created out of it. And I'm wondering though, when reading about your sort of philosophy in business that you really, really believe that anything to be truly successful has to have a bit of poetry at its heart. And I was just back in the office and I'm obsessed with retail, for instance. And I, I wrote down poetry in retail. And I honestly say, would say thank you because I think for the next 10 years, I'm going to try and bring poetry, poetry to into retail. retail. Yeah. Because there's something so beautiful just merging those, just even having that thought. Do you think that your upbringing gave you confidence to believe in yourself and your creative side? Possibly, but I think it emerged maybe as we were doing this business. I sort of honestly launched this business with my my, um, cousin, actually, Govi and I run the business together, but launched it really because I thought there was an opportunity here commercially. But as as I I really started falling in love with this idea and then loading it with all this stuff and found that all my hinterland interests were very, very useful. So um, all, all of the different bits and sort of bringing them in became how it emerged later. My education was extremely analytical so I was a sort of absolutely philosophy politics and economics and then did an MBA and was in consulting for quite a lot of years and later on I was talking to someone I I use a business coach sometimes and he 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 suggested when we were first talking that um I I said look I think I'm an analytical person who's discovered a bit of creativity late in life and he said no I don't think you are he said you're a creative person who's banged himself through this analytical (laughs) discipline and that's why, you know, you look a bit miserable about it all. I'm not sure if I was miserable, but certainly I'm not sure that was really me. 
Um, and yet, you know, emerging from that training, I had these great tools that I could apply for business. But for me, the point of it is the, the art of it. And I I'm, I'm get much more excited about today I'm editing a story for a new opening we're doing in Canary Wharf, which is a story of a swindler in Bombay in 1975 or so. And we've done research on Ponzi schemes and all of, all of that stuff. And that's the highlight of my day. That, that's why I do this stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I, I know the rest of it is incredibly important and I don't of sacrifice course, that. And I, I've, I've got many questions to ask you about that and your father's piece of advice that he gave you. And I'm just, I want to though just go back because you grew up in the UK. You regularly travelled to India um, to visit family. And this obviously this, the love of, your, love of India, as you said, you loved history and you loved all of those things. What were the memories at that time? What age were you? Mm. Well, I think, I mean, the one that I don't remember is when I was a baby, we ended, we were in India briefly um, before we came to London and then came to London. But then after that, trips with my grandparents, and particularly there was a trip when I was sort of six, turning seven. And uh, I went with my grandparents, and my grandfather was desperately trying to set up a business again. So he would have been in his uh, mid to late, late 50s. Right. And he sort of, I guess, dragged myself and my grandmother you know, in tow all around India looking at stuff and trying to set up a business and figuring out what to do and we stayed you know in places that was a back of beyond we were in trains a lot I think I suffered earaches when I was young we I remember big green cockroaches in our flat in Bombay but he did at that time I think he used that as an excuse to go around India and see a lot of the really important sites and he wrote a letter to my mum around 1978 uh, talking about our experiences. It's such a precious thing, I still have it. It's in Gujarati. And he sort of describes how we went there, we traveled around, saw all the major sites of Indian independence, saw uh, Jalinwala Bhag in Amritsar, where General Dyer opened fire on, on people in 1919. Um, the more traumatic things, Gandhi's birthplace, which is, which is close to my home village in Gujarat. And I think that completely changed my, you know, those repeated visits, completely changed what I felt. And I think it didn't really transfer until later. I remember for my birthday present when I was seven, we wandered into a bookshop in Bombay and I used to collect these old comics, which were mythology comics, mythology and history. Uh, my birthday present was to fill in the gaps from my collection. There's probably 150 of these. So I found the sort of 30 odd that were missing. And the bookshop owner was, was uh, so taken with this precocious child. <laughs> he says, oh, I'm going to gift it for his birthday. You know, these, oh these sort of 30 odd comics. I'm sure they weren't particularly expensive, but it was pretty awesome you know, in, in, at that time. And I have a very clear memory of that. So I, th I think all of that was incredibly important to me. God, well, it sounds like such adventures there. One of the things that I love about not only the brand, but what's coming through from yourself is that there is this poetic side, that you're not almost afraid of the, the softer side of things. And you call that Dishoom has been a, described as a love letter to Bombay and uh, homage to food and architecture, as you were just talking yeah. about, and the overall vibe. And, and it gives, as you were saying, this new story of India the, this this thing that had never been even explored so for those who are listening I think sometimes and a lot of dreamers listen small businesses and entrepreneurs listen I think we can sometimes think that somewhere is saturated or an industry is saturated and I always try and encourage people that there is always new ideas you can look at anything did you mm. when you came into this and I you, agree with that yeah yeah so because you weren't put off you almost moved them aside and, and slotted in your own perspective of an Indian restaurant. I mean, if I told you it was 
sort of very, you know, we knew we were doing that from the beginning. Of course, we didn't you know, evolve. We, we looked at a gap and thought there's something here. It's always great in hindsight and, yeah, to say these exactly. things, isn't it? It's, it's rubbish. We you sound very you, clever. You don't know what you're doing at all. And, you, and honestly, when I first sort of announced to people that I was thinking about this idea, I've been thinking about it for years, um, people just thought I was mad. You know, it's sort of going backwards in the stages of the immigrant journey. Yes, because journey. at the time yeah, that you were thinking about it, you'd been to business school, you are working as a consultant, and I read that when you said people weren't thrilled, that was your friends and family when you said, right, I want to open a restaurant. Oh, my dad's friends. They were like, oh my God, yes. there's going to be a curry house. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I think you said, that's why you get educated, so you don't have to own a curry house. Right. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. So you're going backwards in the evolutionary steps. So people thought I was bananas, and then gradually it came together, and uh, and I would say, well, we're doing an Indian restaurant. People thought I was an idiot. Even restaurants were sort of slightly silly. And then I would say, no, no, but we're going to have a really good breakfast. People thought you know, I was completely potty. <laughs> and now I think, you know, de- definitely half of our customers arrive before 5 p.m. And our breakfast is probably 20% of our customers. So we have an incredibly busy breakfast. So all of, all of that did start. But I think it was really during the journey uh, that we discovered the poetry was important. And I think what I probably would say, if I can interpret retrospectively, is that I don't think it's any good being better at the things that other people are good at. That's a bit of a fool's errand. So for me, on a personal level, I think on a business level it's slightly different, but on a personal level that was doing great spreadsheets and getting a really good consulting job or you know, landing an investment banking job. I did that very briefly. But, uh, and being the best at that. And you, you can do all that because other people value it and other people are doing it. But I think a better thing to do is to figure out how you see the world differently, why you think the world is different, and, and then do something about that. And, you know, an extreme example is Jim Henson was just a guy who played with soft toys until he wasn't, until he invented the Muppets. Um, mm. And I, I think it's better to figure out why you're deeply weird and, and act on that. And I think that Dishim is, in, you know, looks quite natural now. We're here sitting here and we're telling a story of a guy in 48 and it's Art Deco and jazz and India and Bombay and chai and it all fits together. But those aren't natural bedfellows before you think no. they are. And then they can be, because you put them together and it's, it sort of works. I think it's, a, it's that retrospective, isn't it? That you mm. can come and say, but of course, and you're like, yeah, but it's because now, because you're looking at it and you're sitting in it and you're seeing it. At the time, it was a vision. You know, you, you, you basically had this vision. Why do you think that you were confident in that vision? Was it because you were like well your background you obviously were able to maybe look at markets and see that there was opportunity and things like that but what gave you that confidence deep in your belly because I think that's what entrepreneurs do have you can understand that it's going to be a roller coaster and it goes up mm, and down and yeah. you can't predict tomorrow and no, what it's nightmares quite, it's going a to wild happen ride. it's yeah. a wild ride but there is this strength that we have at the pit of our stomach that it's correct that the journey yeah. we're on is correct yeah, I think that, that, that did sometime happen. And I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm quite humble about it because we made mistakes and even now we get things wrong and, you know, restaurants are a difficult game. And, you know, I think, you know, whatever success we have can evaporate like the morning mist un, unless you're very focused. But, but I think back then there was a point at which I felt like the idea had both commercial and poetic coherence. So it sort of felt right. I could see the economics of it working, but I could also feel something. And I think mm. in the end, in the end, like no, no one ever. Well, consume, maybe, maybe in 
B2B businesses, you know, to, to business to business, it's different. But consumer businesses, nobody ever chooses anything because of something they think. You, you feel something. You feel an emotion. You know, every, every choice that any consumer makes is driven by how you feel. It's driven by an emotion. At the end, you might think you're choosing because of the, you know, the specs Better of the memory or, or something, a, you know, or, or, on some yes, iPhone. But, you know, it's yes. because you think Apple's a great brand and, you know, you want to be part of that tribe or whatever the reason you choose, your consumption is. But as I felt it coming together, it felt poetically right. It felt like the different mm. elements made a coherent whole and I, I could imagine people coming in you know back, back then the, the team that we were all working on it with my other co-founders at the time that it was going to be something that did have coherence so people would come in and feel something yes and so something clicked to me and at that point I had conviction and I don't know if it was you know it might well have been misplaced because things aren't you know inevitable but we, we did the work and I think eventually you know we did make it work you wrote you wanted to build something beautiful I want to feel a sort of mood when the music and the typefaces and the design and the color of the wall and the pictures and the food and the tastes and the people rushing around and the lighting all come together to make me feel like I want to be here. You know, and that's, yeah, that yeah. is how you instantly feel as you walk into this building. And tell me, the initial graph, though, so that was all very romantic, right? We've just, we've just taken yeah, lovely, yeah. a little moment <laughs> into romantic land, and I'm drinking this You're drinking the chai, chai like I've never, and... ever tasted anything like it. Honestly, everyone. The graft and chaos, though, right that is really what happens also at the beginning tell me about that graft and chaos because okay now everyone thinks you're nuts but you're doing it you're doing an indian breakfast you're going to have an art deco building etc etc tell me about those initial moments were there times that you thought that this wasn't going to work oh yeah i think so as we launched i don't think we really knew what we were doing you know because because at the time we didn't have deep restaurant experience by any means at all, and we hired a succession of general managers. You know, a few of them just weren't any good. That was pretty, pretty tough. Um, the food was always quite good. I mean, our, our chef Noved was amazing, and he's always been great. And my cousin Covey, who works with me, he's he's sort of very good at getting things done quickly. I chew my pencil, you know, before I do anything for quite a long time. And and um, we, he doesn't. We, yeah, he sort of gets stuff done very fast. So it's it's quite quite a good sort of um, you know relationship. We complement each other. But of course, it was a mess you know, to begin with. Some of the front of house stuff was very embarrassing. I remember very early on when I was running a shift and I wasn't that great at running shifts. I think it was okay at running shifts. I wasn't much good as an expediter at the past. But I remember a customer just came up to me and he had a group of 10 for a lunch and he sort of confronted me in one of those sort of TV dining moments, TV restaurant <laughs> moments. And it was as if the music just all stopped and everyone looked around and, and he was like, where's our food? There's 12 of us and it's been an hour and a half. You know, it was pretty early days. Yeah. But, but we, we had those shifts and we had those times and it was a mess. But I think eventually we, we learned the team got stronger and our team is, I think, fantastic. And, and the people certainly around um, in our senior team are brilliant. You know, but Brian joined us and eventually Stephen, Andy, you know, Nina and Arun and Navid was there for a long time. But they, they were all just brilliant mm. um, and re- really helped us to, to get the whole thing it, executed it and coherent. It must scary, those moments, though. Can I just ask, like, you've come from a place where maybe it was like consultancy behind a spreadsheet. You know, it's all quite um, controlled. And then you find yourself standing in front of someone with a whole group of people asking, where is my food? It's a very different world, isn't it? Hospitality, entertainment. This is wielding a spreadsheet, yeah. Industry. Did that freak you out at all to go from one world to another? Just... Yeah. I think it did, yeah. I think it did. I mean, it's it scares very, me. It's very live I, and Yeah, it's wild. alive yeah. all the time. 
isn't it? Yeah, I mean, right now it scares me to think there are customers all over our restaurants. And, you know, even now we could walk in there and plates yes. of food are being fed to people. And there are some really great people in the team cooking food, some equally great people ferrying the food around then cleaning the plates and making the drinks. It's all active all the time. And that, that was, I think that was pretty scary when that first happened to think about that. But eventually, I think there was one point where we had a major insight I'm going to get back to Catherine Hamnett t-shirts. We talked about those earlier. I did. Yeah. I mentioned that I interviewed a wonderful lady called Josie, who's got the charity Choose Love. And um, yes, and so we were just talking about the Catherine Hamlet t-shirts that so they sell. So I've got a, a sort of slightly related. I mean, it's just a segue. But I remember once when, um, and this, this was a seed of a deep philosophical learning on the way to understanding why we could make a business work. Um, we had a, a pop-up in 2011 on the South Bank. It was brilliant. And the South Bank people asked us to put up this pop-up. We initially said no, not enough time, but they insisted, so we did it. And uh, we opened it up. It's, I think it's where the Oaxaca is now on the South Bank. Mm -hmm. It was basically just a, um, a, a porter cabin. And we imagined that an old Irani cafe, these cafes that we sort of think about, walked down to Bombay's Chopati Beach, Chopati, and it had a mild acid trip. That, that was the idea. <laughs> and we got some people called Honest Entertainment who were brilliant to help us create it. And we created it out of recycled materials and old sails. I literally thought you were about to say, so you asked them all to take acid. Well, it was quite an acidic experience. Yes. So you'd go into this place on a Wednesday night, which was made out of recycled <laughs> materials. It was very colourful. And I think we had old bits of newspaper. It was, it was really quite yeah. cool. Yeah. And on a Wednesday night, we'd be plying people with these naughty coconuts, which were spiked with rum. So whole yeah. coconuts, which no one sells because they just take up too much space. And we invented a naughty gola drink, which is a very traditional ice dessert from Chopati in Bombay, and spiked that as well. And these people were sort of dancing around in the evening. <laughs> Wednesday night, this place was full. This porter cabin, 2,000 square feet, was full of people bopping up and down to the slightly odd Bollywood music and, and th these sort of crazy drinks. It was an amazing experience until I remember one time when there was, there was some time when we, the equipment we bought was a bit rubbish. It was all second-hand equipment and it all broke the whole time. And our tundra broke one day. And we served out a different product, which wasn't something that we'd put together. There was some lamb, I think spiced lamb, and we served it in the wrong kind of bun. We bought some buns. And, and I saw a review a few days later. And it was expedient. It was like, there's people there who need some food and we have food. Why don't we do this? We can you know, get the cash in the till. And the review, some blogger, um, wrote, he says, oh, I had high expectations, it looked great, the music was brilliant, the drinks were great, but then when my food came, uh, and he made reference to the cool, we had these Henry Holland type t-shirts, which said cute things, and I'm back to the Catherine okay. Hammond t-shirt, yeah. like Frankie Goes to Bollywood. Okay. Um, so we had a t-shirt called Frankie Goes to Bollywood, and he riffed on this, he says, oh, I saw a Frankie Goes to Bollywood t-shirt, the t-shirts are very cute, but my experience was that Frankie went to Bollywood and shat in a bun. <laughs> And oh my gosh! Imagine reading that. I was m absolutely flipping mortified. But what did was, that teach you? Well, the best thing ever, because what we learned out of that was that you can focus all you want on uh, the commerciality, on getting people in the door, on selling to them, or, or on the costs. Or but in the end, what you've really got to do, and this, this was quite a pivot, is if you focus on awesome food and drink, awesome service, and a happy team. It sounds sort of slightly. Uh, inane and simple but if you focus for me on those three things awesome food and drink awesome service and a happy team you control your costs because clearly your business model is important then the revenue uh, and the profit that follow are like the applause mm. and just as I think a basketball team shouldn't be wow. looking at the scoreboard a basketball team should be learning how to shoot baskets for us that's equivalent to shooting baskets and as we learned that over the course of 2011 and 2012 our revenues went through the roof. So as, as I look at those graphs from the early days in Covent Garden, it was sort of flat. And then as we learned that, 
what we started doing is instead of sending the team home in the afternoon when it wasn't busy or renegotiating the price of lamb chops every two weeks, we would focus on making sure it was awesome. And the other stuff fell into place because, as you know, in restaurants, or people should know, is that the best way to low costs is high revenues. Um, and of course, you, you do have to get your business model right. But the focus should absolutely be on awesome food and drink, awesome service, and a happy team. And we switched the focus, and things started working. And literally, do you see that in the in the in, in the, the spreadsheet? Night, yeah. you, you see that shift, and the only shift really was the attitude you had. I mean, of course, there would be nuances, I'm sure. But generally, when you look at that, that was the shift. Because I, I, I asked, because it's it's what your, uh, a piece of advice that your father gave you, actually. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, which you said was almost what turned the ship. Can you tell me about this piece of advice? Because again, along with poetry to retail, I'm taking, if that's okay, this piece of advice from your father. Well, the one I, I think you're thinking of is that um, you, you focus on, I think, I mean, he used to measure volume back in his business. And he used to laugh at me when I talked that, that said that profits were important, you know, and we should measure profits. And, and in this case, I, I, I guess he was encouraging me to sort of look at the experience and the quality of it and that the profit would eventually look after himself. Yeah. And our interpretation of that, of course, was, was that, is it make sure it's awesome for everyone, control your costs, and then the revenue and the, the profit, the applause that follows. But, but treat that as applause. Don't focus on that because then you won't make it. And yes. I, I still believe that. I think it's not a good way to make money is focusing on profits. You won't. Um, I, I, think, I think the best way to do well in, in this business, and maybe that's true of consumer, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I, I could generalize because I maybe don't have experience, but, but certainly in this business, I feel that the best way to make it work is by focusing on how the customer feels when they walk in the door and the state of mind change that you have from entering the door or jo- joining um, you know, the, the, the queue at the door and coming in. And then when you leave, what's the change in your state of mind? That's where you live and die. As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hey, I'm Abigail. I am the founder and owner of M&H Cake Company, a wedding cake company based here in London, providing fun, beautiful wedding cakes for cool and modern couples. Now, I have loved my business. And one thing that I'm always trying to do is save time, especially in wedding season. Things are crazy. So one thing I have loved is Adobe Express. I have been super excited to see all of the templates that I can bulk ahead of time. I love to bulk all of my social media content. And that is one thing that I'm really excited to do. I like the fact that I can add in my brand colors. There's so many templates for blogging, Pinterest, Instagram. That has been such a time saver for me, especially in wedding season where things are really manic. I can pre-batch all my content and what is even better is I can schedule it. So if you wanna see all of the cool, amazing stuff that I create, why don't you go and tag along and find me over on Instagram at M and H cake. That is M A N D H cake, like cake. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you once more to Adobe who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Mm-hmm. 
the notion in business that if you're going to set one up, etc., etc., you know, we talk about the business plans, we talk about P&Ls, we talk about all these things, the business Bible, you should swallow the encyclopedia that you should know, all of these things. And there's so much imposter syndrome that goes on in business. So people don't go after the crazy dream because guess what? They don't know all the other bits. And I spend a lot of time encouraging people to say, you know, that bit that you're dreaming, that's actually the USP. That's the bit no one else can do. You know, you think about an Indian restaurant, but it was only the imagine your imagination of what this could be that has actually made it into what it is today. And and a bunch of very, very smart people. And by the way, absolutely, you you have a a thousand people that are working with you. So my goodness, it's absolutely... But I do think what your father said, it's it's such a beautiful way of looking at it. It's not something you learnt, right, at at university. This is not something that is taught. It's not taught, no. No, and you try to get to that... You know, I, I used to say it's an unexcellable quality of a business... Whereas when my C-suite would say, well, put it, tell me, Holly, put it in an Excel spreadsheet. And I'd say, no, you can't. You can't. You can't really it's actually that. magic. It's the, I call it the life force, you know, almost going back to uh, my son is a big Star Wars fan. And I don't even, yeah, the life force, you know, it's something you hold. Yeah. It's, it's, you can't explain it, but it's there. If you get it right, it's and there. And you can feel it when you walk into a business that cares, yes. when you walk into a, a shop that cares, when you walk into ESOP or something, like you go, go in there and it's such a simple place, isn't it? The design is in a way so sort of elegant and s- sparse or just very minimal but there's something there and when, when the people talk to you in that business yeah. it's amazing yeah like, wow this is really cool I'm, I'm suddenly you know, I'm feeling something here so I'd love to go back to um, these stories because you, you mentioned it and it's it's absolutely one of the most fun fantastic things that you have done I don't think anyone else has done it to start with and it's you know maybe I think Jeremy King at Corbin and King does this okay but yeah I, I didn't know it generally until much later. though yeah. generally for for those who are listening they not heard this before and you you decided to bring this magical mythical quality a story to a restaurant tell me about how that idea came to you like was it that moment of realizing you were more than uh, the spreadsheet and the consultancy and the PL and the hard facts and was it a love of your self and who you are and the journey you want to take in this business I think it was I can describe when it happened actually because I think I know we designed a restaurant based on this idea of these old Irani cafes in Bombay, which are dwindling. So there was, I mean, the story is that there were uh, immigrants from Iran, Zoroastrians, in the early 20th century who came along and established cafes. And by the mid-20th century, there were three or 400 of these spaces. And these were places where everyone was included. They were really the first places in, in Bombay, maybe India, where the, the common man or woman could go and eat for leisure. You didn't really have that because eating was so segregated. And these cafes were amazing because they really broke down barriers. They brought people together over food. So whoever walked in the door was served and you would get families and, you know, Tax, taxi drivers and high court judges but also hookers and people who weren't socially accepted yeah. elsewhere. So it was an amazing cool thing and as, as we discovered this, I remember we, we sort of designed a restaurant around this and, and the idea became interesting. It was really you know, sort of, okay, this is very romantic it's quite beautiful actually. And I think we did a decent job at that first restaurant but I remember once I was trying really hard to win a design award and um, I, I wrote this slightly uh, 
we, I think we didn't win the award in the end, but I wrote this slightly maybe pretentious piece and I'd been doing a lot of thinking about design and reading and this piece about how Dieter Rams had, he's some you know, design great, Dieter Rams, and how he had 10 rules of design, but he missed the 11th, which was that designing could tell a, tell a story. And, and uh, you know, I imagine, I'm, I don't think he's alive anymore, but I imagine he would be irritated by this if it ever reached it because it's not very neat and, and probably it's, you know, um, not needed to include in his really good 10 rules. But I sort of wrote this piece. And, and it, what I hit upon during writing that piece was that what we were doing was telling a story through the space. We were using the medium of, uh, you know, the walls and, and art and the stuff that was on the walls, the menu, to tell a story about this, this sort of, these, these dwindling Irani cafes of which there are only 20 left. So the next restaurant we built in Shoreditch, I wrote more, wrote actually a story. And then by the time we got to the third one, which is King's Cross, we had a, a proper story where um, we imagined an old, the King's Cross building was incredible because that was a, uh, a big goods shed, you know, from the sort of 1860s right. in King's Cross. It was the old part of King's Cross. And it was this big, enormous goods shed. And, and nobody, um, Nick, Nick Lander, the restaurant critic, had, had reached out and said, do you want to take the space? He says, other restaurateurs don't seem to be able to make it work. So Covey and I went into the space and looked at each other and said, yeah, we can do this. Then came up with the story and the stories of a young Irani, a young man who walks into this goods shed, uh, not in London, but in, in Bombay, in 1928, and near the train station, which is Victoria Terminus, which is a lot like St Pancras. It's a sort of yes, Gothic yes. cousin. More crazy. Um, the architecture is, is quite crazy. It's lovely. So he walks into this goods shed and sees uh, stuff and, you know, men and machines and commerce. And, and he says, look, let, let me do something here. Uh, why don't I set up a chai stand and start selling this chai that we've just drunk? And it would have tasted pretty much the same. And he brews his chai, sells it, and then he bribes the guards and takes over <laughs> a bit more and eventually bribes them some more and takes over the kitchen and eventually, or makes the kitchen, eventually takes over the whole place. So by 48, he's taken over the whole place. And that was a story we wrote. But the predominant events of that period were the events of Indian independence. So that is basically a sort of historical documentation, that, that restaurant of Indian independence. So around the place, there are posters I found in archive of clothes burning, which is Gandhi's way of getting attention as he started doing peaceful protests. All the little rules that Irani cafes have are references to historical events like the Rowlett Act or Lati charging. There's a whole gallery of photos, which are Homai Vyarawala's photos of the events of Indian independence. There's a big graffiti saying Simon go back, which is a protest in 1928 against the Simon Commission. There's a whole wall of Indian independence figures. So, so all of this stuff that I learned about when I was seven from my grandfather and you know, later on studied a bit more and understood, I was able to bring into that yes. restaurant. A, fr a friend of mine, Shalina, is a history teacher and she sometimes hears people muttering, says, well, Dishim's a bit colonial, isn't it? And she gets really furious because she says it's the exact opposite. It, doesn't, it tells a story of how India won its independence and celebrates that. Um, and so all the stuff on the walls is basically India's journey right up to mm. independence and, and marking that with this sort of honor, which I, I really love sort of doing that. And that was our sort of first fully realised story. story. And then it became a, a method. Yes, and then, yes. And then it became a thing that we did. And and, uh, and and what a thing it is. And when you're describing it for everyone who's listening, I'm just watching the love you have for this. And it reminds me, Wilfred Emanuel Jones, the founder of The Black Farmer, it's a business is like falling in love. It defies logic um, and you have this feeling in your stomach um, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And when you're describing this, I feel the love you have for this brand. So for I'm this... just dying to tell you about more of this. Yeah. I'm going to stop. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. it's just, it is absolutely beautiful. Tell me, um, when I think about what you're describing, when I look at the high street, and I'm, I'm going to come back to your story, but I... It made me want to ask you a question. 
We're in Kensington at the moment and we have lots of places around us and retail is going through quite a lot at the moment and, mm. and the independent high street and etc etc. It's a turbulent time. And it's a turbulent time. And I'm a passionate believer in creativity. Retail theatre is probably what I say every fourth word, you know. How do you bring your brand to life? I, I, unfortunately, I have, a, uh, I have had a little shop on Friday. We closed it down after six years. But we did a theme change every single month for six years. So it was a full-on dedicated space. But we would That's bring our, cool. yeah. you know, whether it was the female founders or the kids' summer exhibition or whether it was the art of making or mending. Yeah. So we did this in our tiny, I mean, hello, I'm not even going to begin to compare it. Where was it? Oh, in St. Margaret. Right, so yeah. we're in St. Margaret's. And so we're going through that at the moment. And it's a real pity that this creativity is now not on the high street. Do you believe that this mixture of sort of the yin yang, the grey and the colour business versus and creativity is the future of the high street? What do you think that we could do when... Because you're, mm, what you're doing is question. so different and it's so what I would say smart and magical at the same time and if I just was to walk out this beautiful restaurant I would hit a high street full of everyone not doing that that's interesting I mean I think I think it's it's um you know there is a sort of emerging orthodoxy in retail and I'm not very close to retail or I observe that, that there might be which is that people are buying a lot more online obviously and so the shops that you do produce have to be very special and have to be like showrooms and you have to have digital experiences and immersive experiences and you see you see a bit of that don't you and I, I guess that should lead to magic shouldn't it it should, should lead to people thinking about how to create relationships how to spark interest how to make it beautiful I hope it does. I, th I think it will because I, I see it talked about much more, that realisation that stories are important. Is that in the end, that all we are is really a bundle of stories. Like, that, that's really all you are. You know, you, you're... you're who, who are you? What, what is personal identity? I think personal identity is two things. One is, it's, it's the moments you experience in your life. So if, if you're not even present when you're going out to dinner, you weren't even there. So you're wasting, wasting those moments. And I think the second thing is, you're, you're a collection of the memories, the things that you keep from those moments, which are really then made sense of using stories. Mm -hmm. So we make sense of all of that using stories. And I think brands are beginning to be interested in storytelling. Brands are beginning to say that we should relate to people or we, we should help people to relate to us through telling the story of you know, something or another, the story of the brand or the story of the business or the story of the product or provenance or even more so you know, some sort of fiction or, or creating something else. And I, I, I think I see that around. And I think that you know, people will, will do more of that. Yeah, and, and so that's your take on basically how we think um, we can bloom again, maybe, in different, you know, by, because actually I would have thought that story should have been something that people would have held on to maybe before now, you know, it's, it's a, a but maybe yeah. actually the increase of the utilitarian side of our lives, the, the online shopping, etc., is forcing us maybe to be a bit more human. Obviously, you would have digital experiences, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But maybe it's forcing brands to embrace the life force of a, of a business. This. I mean, I really hope so. Yeah. yeah. I, I really, because you can tap into something that's deep in you, you know, through a story. It can really, things can resonate with you in a way that you might not even understand at a conscious level. And that's yes. really okay. Like, and fascinating as well, yeah. isn't it? How exciting that would be to see. Can I ask you, we're going through quite a lot, aren't we, as a society yes. generally at we the really moment? Are. We really yeah. are. Um, COVID though so we won't go into the crises that we're in at the moment because but let's take us back one a year or two ago obviously hospitality was hit incredibly yeah. 
uh, hard and it might be going through exactly the same I can imagine as an energy powered uh, a business that is powered by energy that you'll probably go through it again how was the period of time going through Covid and I know that you had a sort of mantra, I think, but going into it that you weren't going to lose anybody or you're going to try yeah. and keep everybody, we, we, um, and you managed that, it. Yeah. We, we did say that quite early on in the pandemic. We said that we would um, try and... I, I'm really in, I was into sailing metaphors at the time, <laughs> and it was all about getting the boat to the other side yes. and, and navigating through the storms. And I used to think of us as very good at rowing a boat, so we were good at being rhythm, rhythmic, and we weren't... like it was, But a boat that's uh, with you know eight rowers is, is sort of reliant on calm water and suddenly we were in white water rapids or we were sailing across the sea and the boat was completely wrong <laughs> so that was all quite traumatic and, and as, as we sort of embarked on that well you know I remember March you know 2020 when we realized that there was a thing here and Robert Peston was tweeting and I, I sat with the team and you know we all talked and I said I'm just doing some stupid maths here some basic maths and if you take the numbers that he thinks are going to get infected and the numbers that are uh, not going to make it from the infection, and obviously we knew nothing at that point, I said, oh my God, everyone's grandparents are going to die. Look, I mean, this is, this is going to be very bad. And, and we were all like, no, that can't be true. And, and of course, it, it, it was true. I mean, it wasn't true that everyone's grandparents died, but it was true that it was, you know, enormously momentous events. And as we then ended up in a home on the Zoom screens, and Zoom's terrible, I hate Zoom. You know, I really... I hope someday we can now have a ritual exorcism of Zoom and yes. send it back to hell from whence it came. <laughs> but Zoom, I suppose, was useful and is useful sometimes. But we were staring at each other through the prism of Zoom, which is a bit odd anyway. And, and I, I, I would say I'm naturally, I find it hard to read people. I'm not sure if EQ is my natural strength, but um, when I'm reading a room, I really like to have people there so I can read body language and mm -hmm. see how people are feeling. And mm -hmm. Zoom, you, you take that all away. Yes, so you do. Exhausted. Yeah. And, and as we sort of navigated that and we're trying to think about what we'd have to do to close the restaurants and, you know, people were earnestly telling me that restaurants weren't going to be a thing and the whole world would change and we were never going to travel again and this, this would be lasting forever. And of course, it was, it was sort of not true. But we, we then made a commitment to the team that we would try and keep everybody with us. And, and we managed it, you know, and obviously we had some help from the government, but we also further topped up everyone's salaries. We, we launched a delivery business. We launched a sort of meal kit business and various other bits, which helped us also to keep everybody. Not, Tell me not about just the, that. So that's, uh, we use, you know, the big P word, the pivot word. Yeah, um, we had to pivot. And, yeah. and we had to pivot and, and do extraordinary things in extraordinary time. On a normal day, if someone had said, guess what you're going to do? do? Delivery, you're yeah. going to do delivery, um, you know, and I give you a couple of months to do it. You'd be like, do not be ridiculous. We will need a year, at least two years, whatever it is. It. How insane was it? I think at so, one point in five days. I mean, it, it, we isn't that, yeah, we it's actually it. quite, I, I do recall it. I do bring it up now and again to remind us of what we did do, what what the entrepreneurial spirit can do in times of yeah. these these moments. When you decide, so you decided to do. Tell me about that pivot that you did, and it must have been a hair-raising ride. Well, it, it totally was, and and really, we thought that. I mean, li listening to those people who were earnestly saying restaurants would never be a thing, that was a real. You know, how do you? It was smart people. You know, people who weren't. Um, you know, people who who'd, scaremongering or no, yeah, there were sensible they were, people who were friends of mine who, who were yeah. saying, look, and you should really think about leaving the whole industry or whatever and I, I, you know all, all of these years of work and um, maybe they wouldn't exist and of course that wasn't true it was a bit like people saying 
you know, people said stuff after September the 11th, didn't they, that skyscrapers wouldn't exist in the future. And that sounded quite sensible. You know, why yes. would skyscrapers exist? Because of these tall buildings and how would we fly around and they might not exist? And that just wasn't true. Like, we've mm-hmm. probably built more skyscrapers since then than we have before. But I think there was a lot of that going around. And, and then as we stared at each other, obviously cash was scarce. That, that was a massive problem. And uh, we didn't really know what to do. We didn't, weren't in touch with our customers. We didn't know when we'd have to open again. So suddenly we're brainstorming. What, what do we do? And delivery was something we were never going to do. You know, over my dead body. Yes, we I, I could imagine that. Because yes. we, ex- we, we bring you here and yes. we feed you and we look after you. And delivery is not, not what part we of the do. Story. Yeah. And the <laughs> bike rider might get lost and it'll come home cold. And, and you know, like bread doesn't no travel control. properly. And so eventually we, we figured out all of that stuff and, and tried really hard to, to work our delivery proposition to tell you a story, to, to bring you into what we're doing, to tell you more about the ingredients. To, to We cut off all the menu items that didn't travel well, but we launched it incredibly fast and then, and then sort of evolved it. But, you know, it really did force us into making some very fast and quite cool decisions. And now we've kept the delivery business. We, we think it actually works um, really? as a compliment to our brand. Yeah, yes, oh my... Business. Because you, you must have had people who were able to experience... I think a lot of them... People got to experience brands that they might not have done before. Yeah. And actually, it can be a nice inroad into the brand. Is that is that what, from yeah. your experience or I, I a think continuation? So. Maybe a continuation. I, th- I think so. I mean, I, I sort of hate it if someone's first experience is of our delivery product, which is nothing like being here. But on the other hand, I do hear from people that they love the delivery so much and then they bought the cookbook at home and they love yes. reading the cookbook. So then they came into the restaurant. So I think it, it can work and it seems seems to work. Your analogies, oh, yeah. have, I, I'm an analogy oh, woman. Yeah. My goodness me, this poor podcast, the amount that they have heard and some make sense some don't really but you know they get they get the picture but one of your latest ones um it's a bit like the millennium falcon with yes. lots of bits bolted on and we've just got to make it work and that's what you felt during this period of time you know you, you you're holding rumbling on, through space yeah rumbling through space. With bits of rubber band holding it together <laughs> Yeah, I think we're getting better now. We're back to a bit more normal. Yeah, stuff. yes, yeah. absolutely. Rather than the current crisis. I could, I could, uh, so um, I wanted to ask you about community. You've spoken about this incredible team. You've been voted an uh, you know, you know, award-winning place to work. You've nearly a 1,000 employees. Um, in your book... 1,500 now. Oh, 1,500. Mm, yeah. See, it's, whenever you do the research, it's, it moves. it's only as yeah. good as you know the latest article. So 1,500. In your book, um, which, by the way, is one of the most beautiful cookbooks oh, thank you. ever and for Frank who might be listening don't, yes don't listen to this before I've given it to you Frank um, is that when people um, break bread together you write um, it breaks down barriers and I again I just love your language and again it's poetic has that been a fundamental part of the way you run your business customers mm-hmm. and employees because there is this poetry that's running through, I believe, everything you're touching here. Yeah, it's it's incredibly important to us. We, we sort of, I mean, the, the old Irani cafes in Bombay, which is our sort of source inspiration, were this special place where, where you know, they did break down barriers. They did create shared spaces. And I think that for, for us, as, as we're in a restaurant here, I mean, it, it became really part of our ethos to want to break down barriers. I remember once we were celebrating Eid, uh, and we had an Eid special uh, on the menu. And we were, it was on the website. And I think I'd, I'd written a blog post about uh, Eid and why it was very, a special time. And I'm, I'm a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim. And there was a picture of some children breaking fast. And we got a hate mail from somebody 
who is a far-right Hindu, who wrote in and says, I can't believe uh, I was going to come to your restaurant, but then I saw pictures of hanky-headed terrorist children on your website, and uh, it was disgusting, and, and it was quite colourful, and it was quite, quite articulate, actually. <laughs> he said stuff like, uh, you know, may your wives and sisters dance in front of uh, Muslims or something. It was, it was really, you know, it was sort of insulting in quite a sort of eccentric way, but it was nasty. It was, there was a real edge on it. Now, I remember then seeing quite soon afterwards the polar opposite of that which was at, at our Eid celebration that year I remember seeing three hands in a picture it was an Instagram post and there was one hand and in the post it said so one hand belonging to a girl called Gita which is a Hindu name one hand belonging to a girl called Sarah a Christian name and one hand be- belonging to a girl called Aisha and they were all had henna on the hands and it was the polar opposite of this hate mail mm. and it, it really struck me that it was, we had a role to play in bringing people together. So we, we do a lot of, uh, we do a big iftar in King's Cross every year where we bring people together to break fast. Uh, we do an Eid event, we do Diwali events. And um, at our Eid celebration, um, I remember recently we did one uh, before COVID, there was a thousand people in Dinarama in Shoreditch. And I think a half of those people weren't Muslim. And, mm. and, and that's really good that, that you can bring people together to celebrate each other and, and to sort of, you know, see each other and understand each other in a way that you know, can, can really break down barriers. And food is the best way to do that. And how, how you bring people together and food is such a visceral thing. You come together over a table, you eat together, it's very leveling. And, and, yes. and, and you share stories. You know, stories is back again. And, 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 and you can break down barriers like that. Maybe I'm sounding very naive and idealistic. But no, I, 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 I don't. I, I, I read about your, is it right, your annual family... Mela. Me, Mela. Yeah, yes, the Mela. Mela. Yeah. Um, tell me more about this, because I think this actually speaks volumes about this sense of community that you have when building this business. Well, the Mela is when we, um, every year, and I think we started doing it in 2013. In fact, we started in 2013 because the first Mela was the day of my twin's birth, so I wasn't able to make it. <laughs> and we were in hospital on August the 5th, 2013. And the team were fantastic. They sent me a video saying, congratulations to the twins. So my twins, now they're nine. Oh my goodness, And, yes. and so they, they're very possessive about the Mela and they think it should always be on their birthday. But um, started in 2013 and we, we invite all of our team members, uh, their families, all of our suppliers and their families together. And we essentially create a festival in, in East London on the Isle of Dogs. And we put up a Ferris wheel and lots of little venues and music and and there's sort of a little spa area and other fairground rides and all the food and drink you can eat. And it just is a brilliant day. It really brings people together. And for us to say thank you to our team and to be able to just have fun and, and celebrate together is, is brilliant. And I think it's, you know, it costs a fortune now, I think, but back then it cost a bit less and now we're really committed to it, so we have to do it. <laughs> what I loved about that part, it's not just your team, it's the, your team's family, but also, and this is the bit that got me, it's your suppliers and their family. Because yeah. normally this is the invisible side of business, isn't it? It's, and a lot of times I talk about make friends, not contacts. And it's talking about the world where... Oh, you if must you're make in, relationships. If yes. you're in business and you're choosing your suppliers, let's say, who would you have supper with? Who would you have a drink or go to the pub oh, with? Yeah. And, what, and would you like to form a relationship for a long time with that person? Because actually forming those relationships, I bet, uh, well, I want to ask you, maybe helped you during, let's say, lockdown or oh, things like that. Because yeah. you had spent the time in making it matter that you were working together our our supplies have been awesome i mean you're so right to say that business is about friendships and relationships because i mean i don't think i can do business transactionally i find it very hard to do that 
But having those relationships, having people who stand by you, whether it's your suppliers and, of course, the people in the business, it's what props you up. It's what you are. We're having this chat now about this, um, about my experience edition. But honestly, I'm, I'm just the tip of the iceberg here. I mean, I, I do my job, but there are so many other people who do their job, including our suppliers, who prop us up and definitely did during the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. we, we had long and difficult conversations with people about how to get supply going and how to make sure we paid them on time. We tried really, really hard to, but I think we've, we've basically respected everyone's payment terms and we call them. If we had a problem, we'd say, hey, we're struggling with that. And they say, hey, you're the only customer who does that. People just don't pay, you know, they withhold payment. And we're like, yeah. no, look, let's talk. Let's figure out how to do this together. And of course it was hard, but we came through that with much, much stronger relationships with all of our suppliers, even though it was a very, very difficult time. Difficult time, time for yeah. everybody. But I just, I, again, I think it's brands, isn't it, where you scratch the surface. I used to talk about you scratch the surface and it's the layers underneath when you know that a brand... It's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. That the the reason a brand, I believe, shines so much is because of the depth that the founder has gone to. And so that is Mm. so someone could pick up the phone to your supplier and they would be talking to you in high, about you in high regard. And I think that that is a beautiful thing. Another thing I think is fantastic is you have an amazing uh, a side of your company that's a whole culture in, in that your employees um, um, and your suppliers, but also what you do for charity as well. Yeah, um, because that's you, really important. In India, um, you ensure that no child is deprived of an education because of hunger. You have a meal for a meal initiative and you donate one meal for every meal served at Dishoom. Am I right in thinking this? Because again, my figures might be out of date. 12 million meals? 15. We're almost 15 million. Yeah. 15 million meals. Now, is that something that was you thought about from the beginning, that you wanted a charitable element? Or is this again evolved? And no, you must be evolved. blinking yeah. proud of that. Yeah, I, I really am. I think it's one of the best things we do. I, I mean, I don't really know how to think about that number. It feels like a, a lot, 15 million meals. Like, um, but I'm really, really proud that we, we do that. The origin of it was when once at Ramadan, we were sitting around a big table full of food and uh, Chef was there, Chef Navid, and he was fasting. And uh, we were like, well, you know, what's, what's Ramadan about? I think it was maybe just before Ramadan and maybe he was eating. But he, he, he told us, well, Ramadan's about depriving yourself um, so you know what it is to have little. And then he says, then we do zakat, which is to give charity during Ramadan. So we came up with an idea and says, look, this table is full of food. Why don't we make sure that children who don't have food can eat? And during Ramadan, we started donating a meal for a meal to Magic Breakfast for every breakfast we serve. I think it was actually two meals for a meal at that point to Magic Breakfast, which is a charity in the UK, which works with Childhood Hunger at Breakfast and with Akshay Patra, which is the other charity in India that, that you described. And then we did that for Ramadan, which seemed like a good thing to do. And it, it was it was nice. And then at Diwali the same year, we said, look, let's make this permanent. And that was back in 2014 or 15. And since then, it just has accumulated and we've wired it into the business. And again, it's one of those things that we couldn't put it into the business now because the expenditure item would just be too big. But back then it was sort of, we could manage it, you know, it's per meal and you could build it into your cost. But now it'd be very hard. And we're up to, you know, 15 million meals. The impact that that I know that those charities have uh, for Magic Breakfast, um, I know that I saw some data recently when I was with with the Magic Breakfast, the the lady who runs it, and she was saying that for a child who is fed at breakfast versus a child who is not fed, the gain is about two months of education every year. They pay that much more attention in class that their results improve and it's effectively equivalent to two months of education. In India, the, the net effect, and there's data around this which I can't immediately recall, but 
if children get fed at school, then girls get sent to school because they wouldn't be fed, get sent to school otherwise. But this is because they're fed at school for free, for lunch, they get sent to school. And of course, when women get educated, outcomes in society just improve. It's empirically just, just true. There's lots of data around that. And so if, if we can help girls to be educated and live you know, more free lives and improve their societies, well, that's, that's really cool. I mean, and I'm glad to be able to help with that. And my, it's just, it's again, isn't it? It's just, and this is a restaurant, you know, a restaurant brand. And yet, that's the power, isn't it, of business when we actually put our yeah. capital behind our businesses into improving society. That is the power of business. Um, I think that businesses such as yours and uh, that become part of this sort of fabric of society can deliver change. And I know you feel the same and feel that businesses need to have a bigger heart. Um, you even have a word for it. Siva? Seva. Yes, Seva. Yeah. I knew I would say that wrong. Tell me about this philosophy. Seva. Seva. So Seva is a word for selfless service in Hindi. And we... we work quite hard on this as a basis for what we do and it's um i mean it sounds sounds really simple but we we think of seva in two parts one is that it's about having a big heart it's about being generous in everything you do and the second part is being completely first class is is bringing your a game to the table so if i'm a barman or a bartender or a bar woman serving you a drink i'm mixing you an old-fashioned and i'm looking at you across the bar my first instinct must be that, look, I'm, I'm making you a drink because I want to, to give you an act of love. I want to give this thing to you because I want to be generous. And all of us got into hospitality for a reason, because we like people and we like yep. looking after them. So my first instinct is that I want to give you something that is beautiful. And at the same time, this has to be the best old-fashioned that you've ever tasted. If you die today, you'll die happy because you'll have never <laughs> tasted an old-fashioned like this. And we, we talk about the benefits that you get from that. And I think if you give of your heart and give of your mind, you're really giving of yourself. And a few things happen. I think one is that you're incredibly present. You know, your thoughts disappear and you start focusing on what you're doing there. The second thing is that I think you develop you know, your, your, your personal development and the way, the way you get better at things is, is much quicker when you're there in the zone doing stuff, giving to people, bringing your A-game to the people. I think the next thing is that everything improves because yes. you, you do a much better job. And I think people experience you as, as generosity and love. I think people see that you're really invested in it. So I think mm. it's a, having that sort of sever state of mind, you know, bringing big heart and first class to the table just, I think, changes the way everyone is. And I, I think that when I walk through our restaurant, I see so many people doing that. I see so many people really present, really focusing on what they have to do to do a fantastic job all the way from the back of the kitchen to the, the front desk where the hosts are. Yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful word. And it's actually quite apt that we sort of come to the end of this podcast because I, I believe that that's what you've given us here today as well. It's oh, definitely a piece of oh, your I heart. I hope it's interesting. Def- oh, interesting. <laughs> I think everyone's going to just note this down as one of the most fascinating podcasts I've been lucky enough to do. Um, I liken this journey that we're on as entrepreneurs, as business owners, um, and what we're building, uh, that we're on this epic roller coaster ride. Um, and it really is, isn't it? There's some lurching lows oh, really and some is. ridiculous yeah. highs as well. If you were on your roller coaster and you were in your cart, you'd obviously be eating phenomenal food and you'd have this chai um, with you. Tell me, what would you say has been one of your lows? Let's start with that. I, I think the pandemic and the beginning of the pandemic it was scary stuff really scary stuff yeah it was very very tough and just not knowing you know which way was up which way was down you're in sort of spin cycle and trying to figure out your bearings and you know this unfamiliar zoom and what are our priorities now and it's not awesome food and drink awesome service and a happy team and it had to be 
safety was number one and you know cash was number two and and you know we made a nice list and we sort of thought about it that way but until we got our sea legs you know the storm was very frightening didn't really know what was going on and when you were telling that story you just mentioned quickly but i i could tell that that meant a lot to you when you said i spent all these years all these years building this and it could almost just go we as entrepreneurs potentially do think these things could happen, but it, you'd have a build-up to it, right? You would yeah, know. you get you know, warned. You yeah. get warned. There's no one coming through the doors, you know, or something. You know, you have this warning. It's a, it was a shocking feeling, yeah. I, especially for Hopefully hospitality, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. You know, where yeah. it's literally, it could be it. Yeah, um, and, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, it was fine and we got through it, but it really wasn't apparent, you know, at the beginning. You, you didn't know what was going to happen. And so times like now, with the energy crisis and things, I can imagine you are being affected. Yeah, it's not an easy environment. I mean, with inflation, the energy crisis, and who knows what happens to the war in Ukraine, you know, it's not easy to get uh, staff. Although we're, we're quite blessed because because we're a great employer. I think we have that reputation, so we do manage to recruit. But but it isn't it isn't easy out there. Navigating these waters, I think, is going to be hard. I guess we're we're out and open and we do a lot less zoom which helps me a lot yes. and I, I feel like we can you know this is navigable it's not easy and i think the next 12 months are going to be you know tough it's going to take a lot again but we're going to come through it oh i i think we will yeah i i, I feel like um you know, there are some people who are much more bearish on the economy and the world i, I feel like the next 12 months will test us but we will, we will come through it um, and on the opposite in your roller coaster when the cart's flying high oh, the wind high. through your hair i guess Maybe a couple. One is when we reached, I think, the milestone of 10 million meals donated to charity. I had to sort of pinch myself because it feels like an awfully big number. I didn't ever think we'd be looking at that sort of thing. And I didn't ever really think that we would, you know, when we first set out, I didn't, you know, I'm really interested in philanthropy and I've done, you know, volunteering work in the past and so forth, but I didn't really think that we could knit it so centrally into our business. So I was just thrilled that we could do that. But then maybe the second moment was when, there was a point when, not when the pandemic was over, a bit before that, when we knew we'd kept everyone's jobs and we were able to say, hey, we've kept everyone's jobs through this and everyone is here and we, we're now onward. And we were sort of through that. That was a real, real good feeling as well. Oh, I can imagine. And it's, it's something to be very proud of. Um, Shamil, this has just been the most fascinating conversation. It's that oh, time of you. the podcast where I'm going to ask you, um, well, you're a good storyteller, I, I believe, from, um, but I'm going to ask you to read a letter to your younger self. I don't know how you felt putting this together. Yeah, it took me a while to think about, actually. So I thought it might be quick, but it wasn't. And I let it sit, wrote some notes, iterated it, and eventually sort of managed to get something on the paper that wasn't too long. Oh, fantastic. But it was, I guess it's an interesting and maybe, you know, obviously deliberately emotional sort of exercise because it puts you into that space of relating to yourself as a child, you know, relating to yourself as innocent and without the experience. And then what would you say? I, I found that an enormously interesting exercise. Well, over... Should I, should I read it? Yes, please. Absolutely. I hadn't thought this might be an issue, but I'm going to read it without choking up. I'm going to try and read it without choking up. Let's, let's see how we go. You wouldn't be the first, I must say. It's, it's quite an emotional thing for both of us. Dear Shummel, here I am, a 51-year-old man with grey, no hair, writing to you as a child. I wonder how you'll receive this missive from the future, but please don't treat it too seriously. I would say have faith in your own ability to figure things out yourself, more or less. That said, I should warn you, you're going to get quite stuck now and again in your life, really stuck, where you just can't see straight, where things look quite black. I'm going to tell you that so much of the good things that you managed to do 
of the things that you'll contribute will follow right from the darkest moments. Try and be okay with the discomfort and try and sit with it. Even treat it with some friendliness and curiosity. You won't be able to see around the corners, but some of your happiest and best moments will only come about because of the most difficult spots which brought you the most discomfort. I think I should tell you that you're at your best when you connect the dots your way. You always have your nose in a book. You're always lost in worlds, in Tintin, in Indian history, in mythology, in books and adventures. Nurture your weirdness. Figure out how you see the world differently and do something with that. Do something about that. Don't waste your life competing, trying to be better at all the things other people are good at. Be completely curious and explore. And I tell you what, the uncertainty is okay. It's much less scary than you think. Take more risks and jump. You'll figure it out. And Shamal, you have a tendency of taking it all so seriously. Don't lose your seriousness of intent, but lighten up. Life isn't that long, and there's so much richness, so much beauty, and so many stories, and so many wonderful people. Waste less time fretting, spend less time worrying. Pause a little more when you see or feel something that moves you, even a little, and savour the moment. Life, after all, is just a series of moments where you put your attention. Just be and enjoy the ride. I don't want to spoil it, but the road is going to take you to some really cool places and some tough spots, some highs and some real lows, but they're all part of it. And one day, you'll have children of your own too, and perhaps you can share this with them. Life will be more than you could have imagined and will be nothing like what you expected. Enjoy the ride. And with love, and wish you all the best for all that you're going to experience. Oh. Just beautiful, just beautiful. And actually Thank what you. you've created is truly beautiful. I, I'm doing things in my personal life at the moment, building my future. And I think this podcast is going to really stay with me because you've given me faith in having soul and in having magic and in having brand and in having story. And you've given me a faith in the beauty of poetry that we can bring to what we're what, what we what we do what we exist how we are and and i'm never going to forget this so i really, oh, thank really you, thank Holly. you i really so enjoyed much. the conversation thank you thank you before you go don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash holly tucker to find out how adobe express can fuel creativity in your business And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 